like no time has elapsed, right? We just see each other and yep. we just pick up the conversation from where wherever it was, you know, when on graduation day or whatever. There's no there's no getting to kind of know each other and like too shy to say X, Y, or Z. Like, no, we we are like it is like family, which is which is fantastic. I was gambling in Havana. I took a little risk Send lawyers, guns and money Dead, get me out of this How? So welcome everybody to the Old Grab Podcast uh, Welcome to 2024 This is, a, uh, this is a, a brand new year for the Old Grab Podcast And believe it or not, this is I'm, We're going to be Soon completing the, the full fifth year, entering the sixth year of the Old Grab Podcast, which is really hard to believe. So tonight we have our awesome, amazing two classmates. Uh, this is uh, Chuck Poche, Company F1, and uh, for comic relief from the peanut gallery, from the cheap seats, we have we have the one and the only Eddie Bayuth, also from Company F1. So how are you guys doing? Great, man. Honored to be here. Doing great, Jamie. Just happy to be here. Yeah, it's good times. Good times. You know, Chuck, you and I were having the, the uh, we were having the pre-call, and I was saying, like, in the first couple years of doing the Old Grab podcast, I had a couple F1ers on there, because I'm company F1, and you guys are both company F1, and I kind of intentionally decided to not have too many of our company mates, because... We didn't want it to be the F1 Old Grab Podcast. We wanted it to be the, the Class of 91 Old Grab Podcast. But now that we've got enough reps under our belt, I feel like I can make sure that we keep it uh, digestible for the entire class. So I'm looking forward to it. You know, I think that that's a, a great call out and fantastic. I mean, we got so many great folks in our class. And it's awesome that you do this for everybody. Yeah, it really is a lot of fun. It's a labor of love. And, you know, I set out to last year – I said I would try to do 12 episodes. We actually did 16 episodes last year. And uh, I'm going to set out again to do 12 episodes this year, uh, maybe more, but definitely, you know, try to do 12. Um, 2023, we had the most downloads of any other year in terms of the Old Grab podcast. And we didn't just see downloads in the episodes from 2023. We saw episodes being downloaded from the entire the entire library of old grab podcast so that was that was a lot of fun um and uh, i'm glad that we're able to continue this and i've gotten a lot of feedback that people really enjoyed and chuck you know among the people who gave me great feedback was you you felt that this was something that you really enjoyed listening to and was helpful to you in your transition out of the army uh, you want to tell me a little bit about that and some of the episodes you might listen to and what you found what you found insightful no yeah certainly i mean this was a, a exceptional help uh to me you know as i as i was getting out at, at 30 years and looking back and, and thinking to myself well you know i've been i've been in uniform since i was 17 i've i've not had to figure out what i'm going to wear to work uh, my entire my entire adult life uh, so that it was a big transition and I'll, I'll be honest with you jamie it it affected me emotionally a lot more than i thought it would just from a you know okay so all my life i've been been a soldier i've been an officer i've been an attorney i've been a judge advocate so, so who am I going to be now? How does this, how is this going, going to work? 
Um, and of course, I got my family there providing all the support that they always, always do. Uh, but to hear on the old grad podcast from other folks who had, who had also made the transition, uh, whether it was after serving five years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years, whatever the case may be, just to hear our classmates uh, talk about life after the uniform. Um, and it really gave me uh, a positive sense that, yeah, life life can be pretty good after the after, after the uniform. Uh, it really helped me to understand that, you know, other folks are going through the same thing and and they were they were doing OK. And, and the folks that that weren't doing OK were, were honest about, you know, uh, getting help to help them through it. And and that I was in the same situation. I could do the same stuff. So it really, really helped me see that there was life uh, life after the army. So let's do a, a current sit wrap of where we are, what's going on. Um, Eddie, you want to uh, kick us off here? Tell me where you are, where you're living, family, job, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I live in Jacksonville, Florida. I, As I was deciding where to settle after I retired, um, I wanted to be close to my parents. That, that was the biggest um, deciding factor. Best parents live in St. Augustine, which is about 40 minutes away. So we we knew we were destined for Jacksonville. So. I am working as a category manager for JEA. That's a utility company in uh, Jacksonville. They do water, sewage, and electric. And I'm, I'm a, basically a category manager in procurement for them. So I do professional services, fleet, uh, facilities, and investment recovery. So it's been a kind of going back to what I did a little bit with Kraft Foods and M&M Mars when I had a break in service and I was in procurement back then. So I figured that'd be an easy thing to slide back into. Um, but like Chuck said, it I thought I'd have it easy getting back out in the civilian world, but it was tough. It was tough to leave, uh, even though I had that break in service to leave the military. It, you know, it, it was a, a transition that I still feel two years later that, you know, it still it tugs at me a little bit. Eddie, you've had one of the more interesting uh, and kind of non- um non-typical careers for a West Point graduate? Because you got out, what, after six or seven years the first time, I think, right? Yeah, I got out after six years. Um, went to the, went in the private sector after September 11th. I was in uh, around Fort Jackson, South Carolina. I went in and got a physical in October because I was still in the IRR. And I had the opportunity to get out of the IRR many times. You know, they send you a little card. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to, just in case, I'm going to hang on to this. And, uh, you know, I'm glad I did. Uh, I'm glad I came back in uh, and, uh, you know, glad I lasted 20 years. It's funny what seemed like a good idea at 42 did not seem like such a good idea at 50, but by then I had the time. So it, it was time to go, but it, it was a great, great ride. I mean, yeah. phenomenal. I would love to have you on as a guest on the Old Grab Podcast to, to delve in even further. We're going to get to hear some of your story tonight, but I know there's so much more to it. But tonight, the main event, the main the main focus is Chuck Poche. So, Chuck, uh, I am uh, so happy to have you. So, why don't you give me the current sit rep, where you are, what's going on, and then we'll we'll do our typical arc of the podcast. Okay. Well, I, um, I retired from from out of the Pentagon, so I didn't go far. I'm still in Northern Virginia. Um, I'm still affiliated with the Department of Defense. They, they, they still send my paycheck. So I'm a DOD civilian attorney with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency here right outside, right outside or technically on Fort Belvoir. And, and uh, your your family, kids, parents, siblings, what's the story there? 
Okay. Uh, yep. So uh, my, you know, my high school sweetheart is still my wife. So Renee is here in Northern Virginia with me. Uh, two kids, Madeline and Zach, uh, both both the young adults. Zach's in his uh, his third year. Uh, they don't call him Kyle's there, but he's in his third year at VMI. Uh, Madeline graduated from the University of Virginia, and now she's in she's in grad school. Uh, so we are we are all here. I think I'm beginning to lose the battle in, in having my kids think of themselves as Louisianians as opposed to Virginians. Um, but that, that's just going to be between me and my my folks. My folks are still down in South Louisiana. Uh, we go down to see them uh, as much as we can. And Eddie, I can I can completely empathize uh, with you. Uh, it is you, you reach that point where you just want to spend more time with your parents, and you want the kids to spend time with their grandparents, and and it is a it becomes a a very important thing that's always in the forefront of your thoughts is is, is spending all the time with them that you can. I'm just thinking about something. I, I don't know if I should say this, but like, you know, my, my in-laws, they live very close. They live like 10 miles away. My mother lives one mile away. We just spent the whole weekend with my in-laws and I think we're good. We're good for a while. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, we went, we went up to West Point. Actually, we took two cars up to West Point because uh, we're carrying some stuff up there. So I had my father-in-law in the car with me who doesn't say very much. And my wife had my mother-in-law in the car who talked the entire way up there. And when she got up there, she's just like, I need, I need time to myself right now. My mom was just talking the entire time. So, um, but they're, they're good. My, my in-laws are, they're great people, salt of the earth. And I love them. And I still got my mom. So, and she's local too. My mom who baked you cookies, right, Eddie? Absolutely. I sent her a Christmas card every year. Yeah. Thanking her for the cookies. So yeah, that was phenomenal. And I think I certainly remember the big ZD. Yeah. Yeah, the big ZD. Yeah. And the, and the Boston, Boston. Well, no, but I gotta say, nothing in the world quite comes to rival Mrs. Poche's pralines that we used to get in our room, plea beer. Those were I, I, I may have somebody who can give my, my mom a run for the money, though, Jamie. Renee, yeah. Renee, Renee can now make some. Oh, yeah. She's, she's got it. She's learned from the best and she is, uh, she has taken it. Well, we should uh, say hello to some of our classmates who are joining us on the line. We have like uh, between seven and ten classmates toggling on and off. And I only know I only know you're out there if you comment. But I see we got Moose George, our company mate. We got Roe, Dave Romano, Bill Irwin. Uh, a few other folks are joining us. And so people will cycle on and off and they'll they'll pipe in some questions in the chat. And I'll keep a I'll keep an eye on that. So um, we'll see what's we'll see what's going on with that. So, Chuck, tell me about your role here with DITRA your current job, and maybe talk a little bit about transition, how you kind of landed this job and how it intersects with your 30 year career, but you know, what the future looks like too, with uh, the defense, uh, what's it called? Defense threat reduction. Yeah. Defense threat reduction. And your, your boss, I remember your boss on your, um, who, the guy who handled your, your retirement said it's threat reduction, not threat elimination, like just only reduction. You want to set attainable goals, right? <laughs> so, so yeah, it's the Defense uh, Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, they've got a fascinating mission. I really didn't understand the breadth of what it is that they do when I when I signed on with them, but it's been great. Uh, just in a in a nutshell, they're sort of all things um, WMD for the Department of Defense, right? Our mission, short short form of the mission: deter, prevent, and prevail. Right? To deter you know, strategic attacks using uh, weapons of mass destruction against our country and our allies to prevent um, and reduce uh, the threat of WMD. And then if somebody does decide to use any of that stuff in us, whatever that is, make sure that we prevail and they don't receive any benefits from their, from their use of that. So, so all things nuclear, chemical, biological, we've got a huge research arm 
I was thinking about that today, like my office, and we have about uh, 15 attorneys in, in my office. Um, we have one dedicated intellectual property uh, attorney because of all the R&D we do. The entire army, as big as the army is, uh, has four civilians who do that. We have one in Ditra and we have only have 2,000 folks, which just gives you some idea of the, the scope of the research we do. Uh, but part of what I do is I handle the operational law portfolio. I mean, operational law will be familiar to most of our, our visitors, but it's not it's not sort of the the army version of that, right? I don't give advice on you know who can we shoot, who can we bomb that that version of operational law. Uh, but I do cover on the the nuclear preparedness portfolio. So I travel around the country and the world, uh, giving classes basically on nuclear weapon incident response. So what what happens if something goes wrong with one of our one of our nuclear weapons. So I teach that uh, with one of my one of my colleagues. And then I'm also, uh, frankly, because of you know how close I am to the door of our office, I kind of do the triage of everything that comes in. And somebody walks in, they say, I think I have a legal question, but I'm not really sure who to who to ask. Um, my my colleague Deb Hutchins and I will take that in and we'll figure out who to who to sort of recommend that the deputy um, parse it out to. But yeah, it's a lot of, of catching whatever comes in the door, which is fascinating for me because I never know what's going to come in the door. So there's no opportunity to get bored. So one day it might be personnel law. One day, one day it may be uh, contract and fiscal. And I won't handle those things directly because we have experts who do that kind of stuff. But I get a little flavor of it as, as I try to figure out where it needs to go. How but is it set up? How, like, like, is it like, how is... Well, first of all, what's the footprint of the of the offices? Is it just D.C. or is it all around the country? And are you set up like almost like directorates? Like you got like you have nuclear and chemical and like how is it broken out? Yeah, so it, it is it is uh, it is all over the world. It's worldwide. Probably about 15 percent of our folks are here in D.C., but we've we've got folks. Uh, we've got Ditcher Europe. We've got a, a, a large contingent out at Kirtland Air Force Base in Albuquerque. Uh, we've got got folks who work at all of the the combatant commands because we're both a defense um, a defense agency is one of our roles, but we're also a combat support agency. So when the combatant commands need something uh, having to do with WMD, they look to us uh, to provide that that expert advice and analysis uh, to them. So that's that's how we support the force out there. We've got about two thousand people uh, in total. Like I said, probably about fifteen percent here in DC. Probably a couple of hundred of that are military. Most of them are are civilian. Our deputy director is typically a flag officer. Uh, it's 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 technically officially a Army three star position, uh, but we've had it filled by you know all branches of the service anywhere from one to three stars. So it does have that military flavor too. Uh, it did take me a little while, you know, walking in and out of the building with passing somebody in uniform and feeling like something wasn't missing because one of us didn't salute the other. Right. <laughs> but I'm finally getting over that after about three years now. I'm like, yeah, OK, uh, we don't we don't have to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah I have to believe that that's got to be like when you when you when you show up to work. Well, first of all, how much time did you have from the, from the day that you retired to the day that you showed up for your first day of work? Um, About negative Four months. Uh, I showed up for work while I was still on terminal leave uh, from the army. Which, which, by the way, I feel like that's a typical Chuck Boucher move, right? Like, you are a hard charging, <laughs> you're a committed guy. You know, I was going to say I don't necessarily recommend that, but but then um, and I, it does. It's not typical. You do have to get a waiver to be able to be able to do that. Um, but uh, you know, so 
really it, it really helps the transition when you're drawing two paychecks for like a four month period, right? Because you're still technically in the army and, and you're working at the DOD. Um, so there was very very little time uh, on that. I kind of I, you asked how I got the job, and I I use this as a as a life lesson uh, for my kids um, because it really shows that as you go through life, you you really should be nice to people because you just never know who might be in a position one day to to make a decision about whether or not you should you should have a job. Our our uh, our deputy here at Ditra is a fantastic guy, Jay Erdrich, that I served with as as a captain. So when this job came open and and I applied, um, he already had some idea of, of of who I was, and so you know did the whole government competition piece of that. And you never know. Um, it's kind of like deterrence. You only know when deterrence fails, right? You never know what got you in the door. But, you know, would the resume screeners have screened me out? Um, but for uh, this this guy I'd served with many years ago, um, knowing me, I, I don't know. You, you don't know that. But it was fantastic to be able to to work in an office with somebody whom I already had a relationship with. How many people are former military that you work with versus just civilians the whole time? Um, we've got quite a few uh, former military. So let me just kind of real quick run down in, in my mind. We're probably about maybe a little over, well, probably well over half are, are former military. Some are still in, some are still um, uh, reservists. Uh, so they still do their their reserve duty at um, when called upon. Uh, some some are, you know, retired after after 20 years or so. Um, our our General Counsel, uh, member of the Senior Executive Service. He retired from the Air Force after a long, successful career. He did thirty years, um, and some some served for a certain period of time and, and got out. So we have a whole gamut of, of you, folks, but mostly like from the lieutenant, from the major to lieutenant colonel level. Um, do you find it? Is there is there like a difference in the way that you communicate to people with prior military service versus like a civilian? Like, do, do you do you automatically know who those folks are? You can kind of talk shop with people and use acronyms like AAR or like sit reps or, or like, or do you, what's, I, what's that? Like? I think it, I think it was probably easier for me because we're, we are still a DOD agency. So there's uniform folks um, all around all the time. So maybe I don't, what well, wasn't as cognizant of it as I'd have to be uh, if I were in a, just a typical civilian job, boy, there were nobody in the in the organization has any military experience. But no, you you can tell sometimes when you get that kind of puzzled look when you realize you kind of kind of dial back the the military uh, piece of it. Uh, but it it hasn't really been much of of a struggle. It is it is interesting because you know without you know, when you're in the military, you wear your whole resume on your uniform, right? People just look at it and they kind of can tell with all your badges mm -hmm. and tabs or whatever what, where you've been and what you've done and. and patches and all of those things you don't have that in the civilian world uh it, one funny story i had was i was doing some coordination with the military district of washington who handles our our military justice stuff for uniform service members and i was on a telephone conversation um with a young young judge advocate and and, and that young judge advocate spent a really long time explaining the army gomar process to me Right, <laughs> which which was fascinating. <laughs> so I just I just let her go through it and and, and let her let her finish up, and then uh, I imagine that probably when that phone call ended, the the more senior judge advocate in the room probably turned to it and said, "You do understand the person that you were talking to has a great deal of experience in the Army Gomar process, right?" <laughs> but you you just don't know because there's no there's there's no way to tell. So there there is a little bit more of 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 that. 
uh, kind of figuring out exactly what people's experience levels and what they've done and things of that nature, which is fun because it gives you an opportunity to get to know people. Eddie, you've worked with a lot of civilians too, right? Like when you were like, I guess when you, when you get to be a senior officer, like you both were, you end up being around civilians like in their role, I think. And Eddie, you, you did that too, right? At the, uh, in, in the uh, consulate's office or at the, uh, in the. Actually it was, it was mostly military. So I, as you know, when you came down to DR, I was uh, the deputy of the uh, conference, of the American armies for the cycle being done in the Dominican Republic. So it was all military, but it was a different military. I mean, this is a Dominican army. Uh, you know, they don't have the resources that we do. They don't have the training that we do in a lot of areas. So it was uh, very interesting to be exposed to that. But uh, civilians, um, a little bit when I was doing the postal mission, because the uh, CENTCOM postal lead and the Army postal lead were all civilians. Uh, but the, the last couple jobs were mostly, although in New Jersey, we dealt with a lot of civilians who were trying to open those hospitals during COVID. So. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, they, they look at you with a certain level of respect just because you're wearing the uniform. Yeah. You know, they, they are almost deferential when you deal with them, even though it was a, you know, the director of the Department of Health in New Jersey. You know, it, there was a certain deference that was shown. So that that was nice uh, to, to be yeah. given that respect. Chuck, you were mentioning to me on the pre-call that there's actually, there's been incidents within Ditra. There was the last one being, I had no idea, there's a place called Damascus, Arkansas, right? But, uh, so tell me what happened in Damascus, Arkansas, and how does Ditra inter intersect with that? Okay, so so it, it, Ditra will be quick to say that was not, not a Ditra thing, but it was certainly a, a DOD thing. So, um, our audience is probably old enough to remember that John Travolta the movie Broken Arrow right where where he stole the nuclear weapons or whatever well there have been 32 actual broken arrows in in dod history and, and the last one of them number 32 was the one in 1980 in damascus damascus arkansas and we use this as an example when we teach nuclear weapon incident response of the things that can go wrong and then and and how then the dod mobilizes along with the department of energy and a whole bunch of other people as you would imagine to deal with this incident when it happens but what happened in damascus arkansas is basically um an airman dropped a, a socket down the missile silo now this is not like you and i's craftsman socket that we would use on our vehicle out in the garage right this is like a nine pound socket designed very specifically to do something on this on this missile well it it came loose from his tether it bounced down the side of the missile silo it impacted the side of the missile and the missile started leaking fuel because the missiles are very thin because they try to make them as light as possible so it doesn't take much to puncture one of these things well eventually it it, it caught fire um the entire silo kind of kind of blew up and you know i was a systems engineer i wasn't an actual engineer so but i think if you got a bunch of stuff in the hole and you blow something up at the bottom of it a lot of stuff in that hole is going to fly out of the hole well, of course, what flew out of the hole was the payload on that missile. So now there's there's a nuclear device out there somewhere in the vicinity um, that's no longer attached to its missile, and we got to go out and find it um, and make it safe and get it back to the Department of Energy so that they can do what they they do with them to render them safe and remove it from the from the stockpile and all of all of those things. And knock on wood, that was the last broken arrow incident we had uh, in the United States. I always laugh when we put up the slide in this class because they list them all. And of course, the Army's never had one. 
the Air Force has had the most, but that they will tell you, and rightfully so, that's because they used to fly them around all the time during Operation Chrome Dome. You know, 24-7, we had bombers up with, with nuclear weapons on them. So the odds are that something something's going to happen. And people will like say, well, the Army never had any. I'm like, oh, yes, we used to have them. <laughs> but uh, we have never had one of these kinds of incidents. So. Does it ever happen with this like radiation? Like there's like uh, exposure to like nuclear ra radiation. So we we because of the way our weapons are designed, and everybody out there should feel very very good about this. I'll just throw this little factoid out there that we talk about in our class, right? In 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 normal in normal state, um, normal operating environment, there there is less than a one in a billion chance that there is going to be any nuclear yield with that weapon. Now, even in an abnormal state, like it falls out of an airplane, like it catches on fire, like it, it falls into the ocean, um, that chance drops to less than one in a million. So these are very, very well, well designed. We have never had a nuclear yield in one of these accidents, but we did have an act, we did have them um, where they spread radiation about when the high explosives that are part of this, this package uh, went off. So we had that in... Uh, Palomaris, Spain is one example. In fact, we still play, we still pay money to the people of Palomaris as a result of that, that accident. Uh, and we had the the same thing in, in Thule, uh, Greenland up there in the Arctic circle way, way back in the day. So that, that, that can, can happen, but we've never had one go literally go nuclear. So what's your typical day, week, month look like, like, you, like you, like, do you guys have like a, staff meeting you're working on plans like what like what's the what is what is the, the daily the daily battle rhythm look like for you and your role okay so so uh i probably travel to teach that class on nuclear weapon incident response because i deal with the federal jurisdiction that goes with that because you can imagine the the the, the federal government's going to show up in your backyard if one of these things fall in, in your backyard i probably travel for that maybe four four times a year because i share that um with my with my colleagues, uh, we go to all the nuclear capable uh, bases uh, throughout throughout the U.S. and some places overseas. Um, so that'll be a week long class. So I might be gone for one week out of the month. A typical week um, really does not necessarily vary much. I'm very grateful that our office only has one staff meeting a week that I have to attend. That we kind of fill each other in on what our cases are and what's going on, and and use it really as sort of a legal brain trust if we've got anything that's particularly puzzling because. Because of the experience of our our group that we have there, and I tell people this when I do the newcomers brief, um, is that hey, look, I mean, you, you're you're from might be familiar if you're in uniform with a typical legal office at an army post, right? Um, and you you may have a bunch of captains or even some lieutenants in there. That's not our office. Like every one of our offices is a GS fifteen, with um, with the exception of our general counsel himself, right? Every one of our attorneys. So it's very senior. So they've all seen a lot of stuff. And they just have a tremendously diverse uh, background, and they're all really good lawyers. So we throw a problem out in the middle of that table, and usually we can we can beat it into submission uh, pretty quick uh, with the with the legal analysis. So we do that once a week. I have other smaller working group meetings that I will go to, just as a result of. I mean, the easiest way to explain it is they're kind of like my additional duties. So I'm the I'm the training officer. So I I do the stuff that deals with exercises. Obviously, we do exercises because the joint staff does you know all of these all the exercises. Uh, the COCOMs have their exercises. If DITRA has a play in that, if there's some WMD component to that, um, we will participate. So we get exercised like like everybody else. Um, so I'll have one of those meetings, you know, probably every other week or so, um, and then I also deal with a lot of. Uh, 
administrative law kinds of things. Like we have your usual command investigations and things that would be the equivalent of a 15-6 investigation, that kind of stuff. So I provide advice to investigating officers on that. Um, I also review a lot of the support agreements that come in between us and other commands and, and entities. Uh, and really, just as I said before, kind of triage everything that comes in the door. If it doesn't fit into some specific category that other folks in the office are much more expert on, uh, then we'll, we will take it for action. And then it's, you know, just what, whatever work comes into the office that the deputy assigns us to do, uh, happy, happy to do it. So aside from the mission of saving us from ourselves, which is like, you know, these incidences that happen with our own weapons of mass destruction, do we also deal with the threat of other weapons of mass destruction, like in other, like, you know, the Russians, the Chinese, the, the you know, the Indians, Pakistan, uh, French, whatever. Like, what's... Yep, that, that goes straight to the to the reduction part of the mission, right? So um, you asked earlier, and I kind of, I didn't really address it about our different directorates. So we got, you know, a nuclear enterprise director. We also have a building partner capacity directorate who will go into other countries who are trying to deal with these things and we'll, we'll teach them how to, how to detect these materials if they're coming over their border or things of that nature. Um, when the, when the Soviet Union fell, which we will all, we, which we all remember, right, as we were coming on active duty, there was lots of mass weapons of mass destruction all throughout the former Soviet Union that had to be, had to be handled, Right. So Ditra went into those countries to teach them how to how to demill this stuff and destroy it and do all those things. Um, the army just recently finished destroying um, the last of our chemical weapons. Ditra had a role in that because that's, again, reducing the threat. When um, when the chemical weapons came out of Syria and had to go somewhere to be destroyed, Ditra had a role in that and figuring out what mechanism was going to be used to do that and how that how that would uh, would take place. And sometimes we get, uh, you, you see some rumors out there, we're, we're often the target of misinformation where people will see us working with, with other countries. Uh, this occurred when Ukraine uh, kicked off and, and the Russians accused us of, you know, building bio labs in, in Ukraine. Like, no, that's, that's not what we do. <laughs> but we do go there and train them on how to fight infectious diseases and things of things, of, things of that nature. Um so it is it is very much focused on the preventive part uh, also, right, as part of the uh, deter, prevent, and prevail is to try and re reduce that threat out there all over. Like when, when Fukushima occurred, the nuclear uh, reactor in Japan, they got hit with the tsunami. Ditra sent folks to assist with, with that. Anytime, anytime, and this is interesting, uh, I had no idea Ditra did this. Anytime you have a large chemical incident in the United States, like a train derailment or something something like that, um, we will activate um, some of our folks who are experts in plume analysis and all that to help the local officials and say, hey, look, this this stuff, these weather conditions, this is where we expect this stuff to go. DITRA plays a role in that national effort to do that kind of stuff. How about like um, Iran, North Korea? Those uh, is there is there a role for DITRA or is that is that another entity that has to deal with those threats? Um we we have we have a role in that as as part of our uh, defense agency piece of that. Mm -hmm. Like we also have the the treaty monitoring and treaty verification folks also come out of Ditra. So mm -hmm. we we send folks to the if, to Russia and the former Soviet Union and whatever arms control agreements are still in force, although they're getting fewer and fewer in number these days. Um, it is folks who come out of Ditra to go on those missions um, to to verify compliance and, and and things of that nature. So we do work mm -hmm. on work on that also. And then we we also have a role in um, 
things that we do here in the U.S. to ensure that we are meeting our treaty obligations. For example, I've done a done a legal review of some testing that we wanted to have done, and you you've got to do it carefully to ensure that in the act of doing your testing, you're not actually violating the Chemical Weapons Convention, right? Because if you if you do certain things, use certain chemicals in a certain way or whatever, it may be a technical violation of the treaty. And so we, those things have to be legally reviewed also. So, so you got to like dig into those treaties and like understand what they say and then figure out what we want to do and figure out if we're within the lines of the law, huh? Right. Whether or not, whether or not we, we comply, because we have an official in DITRA who, who that, that is part of their job is to make that final sign off that yes, this particular use of this chemical that is otherwise controlled under the, under the convention is, is valid under the convention. Wow. Good for you. Good to know that we've got a class of 91 classmate in, in there dealing with this very, very relevant, real and concerning uh, threat. So, um, I'm calling you if the balloon goes up. Tell me where to go. <laughs> Not downwind. Yeah. <laughs> as upwind as you can get. <laughs> you got to hook me up with some potassium iodide tablets. As far away from Washington, D.C. as you can be. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's ground zero. Yeah. So, so Chuck, um, let's maybe turn the hands back at time here. Let's think about, like, what it was like for you growing up in in uh in beautiful louisiana uh paulina louisiana and uh what made you want to go to west point what your life was like pre-west point so so take me back to any year as a start you know prior to 1987 all right so i'll say probably 1985-ish 86 ish when everyone would typically get ready to start putting in an application for west point so i'll, I'll tell the story and it, and you may have heard it this before jb at my retirement ceremony about how i got uh interested in going to west point and it True story. Um, you know, I'm from the South, so we won't necessarily let the truth get in the way of a good story, but this is a true story. Uh, my One of my best buddies in high school bet me one large pizza from Domino's that I couldn't get an offer of admission from West Point. And I was certainly stubborn enough and competitive enough of that time. And it, yeah, I still like pizza that uh, I, I made I made the attempt and, you know, like, holy cow, I, I got in. Um, I'd never really considered the, the military before. Um, it was something that was just different. Um, and so, and I knew it would be a, be a challenge and I thought that I, I would in, enjoy that. So, so off I went and then what I would tell people, what I told people for almost for 34 years is that, yeah, you know, I got into West Point and that guy still owes me the pizza, uh, but, but he did. He actually came to my retirement uh, ceremony and in the middle of my ceremony, he had delivered one large pizza from Dom, Domino's. So he, he, he paid his debt. Um, I'm not sure what the interest on one large pizza would, would be over 30 years, but he, he at least at least paid the uh, the basic debt. And and that's really the story of how I got there. Much to my my surprise, and I think very much to my parents' shock. I am from a small town, uh, Louisiana, Pauline, Louisiana, uh, completely unincorporated. Uh, you know, my dad was an oil refinery operator. He did he did one one tour of duty in the Vietnam era. He was stationed in Germany as as a mechanic. Uh, so it's not like there was a long history. Now I had, I had a lot of uncles who were members of the greatest generation, obviously who had served in World War II and Korea and stuff like that. But it, it, it certainly the military was not like the Poche family family business. So I think it was very surprising to my parents um, that I went to West Point. Probably even more surprising that it, to them that I stayed in as long as I as long as I did. But you you know as you well know it's a it's a calling and it's something you, you can fall in love with. And I just enjoyed what I was doing. And I, I always told the folks that I worked with, I'm like, look, I'm going to, 
I'm going to stop doing this the day I stop having, having fun. And I got to 30 years and I was still having fun, but at some point <laughs> you gotta, you gotta go. So that's how, that's how that occurred. You know, just one quick speaking, just to digress one second, you were mentioning when it was coming time to retire, you had the opportunity to extend as a Colonel and keep serving. Right. So that was a, that was an opportunity that was very, uh, uh, very interesting as a concept, but you decided that, uh, well, tell me yeah, that, that, that was, that was, that was tough. I, I still remember that, uh, vividly. So there is, there is selective continuation for O sixes beyond a mandatory retirement. Now uh, I would, so I guess, you know, if we have any of our, our classmates who are still O sixes and in that they are, they're a part of that program. Cause we're certainly beyond 30 years now, but they do that for, for folks with specialized skills or whatever the case may be. And, and they offered me uh, what we call cell con. And I can remember, I got, that email from, from HRC and you got to give them a response and you, you have a deadline. And so like, it, it's literally like click yes or no, right. Whether or not I'm going to stay in the army or not. And I'm sitting there at, at my dining room table because this was during COVID. So I'm doing this without the benefit of being in the office in person with, with people uh, around me who could kind of understand what that, what that was. And, and I literally like just watched my finger go back and forth over that mouse button like i could not decide to just click the send button and and turn it down because this was such a such a tremendous change for me because you know i love the army and it was it was really all that i knew um but just to show how, how sometimes maybe there's a higher power that takes care of you you know i i, I finally mustered up my courage and, and i clicked that button and i immediately felt relieved like, okay, so I had made the right decision, but, but then what really cemented that is literally like five minutes later, I got the, uh, the email telling me that I was selected to do an interview for this, for this job at Ditra. And I'm like, okay, there is, there is, there's a power out there letting, letting me know that I made the right call. So we'll, we'll, we'll go back to 1987. The guy never got the pizza until 30 years later but so had you were you, were you considering other schools when other than west point or did did you go early decision like how did how did it come to be that you decided to yeah, go to west point? I, I i definitely wasn't early early decision um i was considering schools all of them were in louisiana i mean jamie i, I will tell you you know at that point in my life i had left louisiana the grand total of one time <laughs> Like we went on vacation to Biloxi, Mississippi one time. <laughs> and that, that was the only time I'd ever left the state. So all those schools were in state. Yeah, I considered, you know, LSU, I considered Tulane, even uh, Loyola there in, in New Orleans. I obviously I had a lot, a lot of my high school classmates were going off to, to LSU. Um, very, very importantly to me at that point in my life, Renee was going off to, to, to LSU. Um, but the more I kind of read about West Point in, I remember they used to, maybe they still do, uh, they used to send out this really glossy catalog to the prospective cadets or whatever. And I, I can remember I was working in my uncle's grocery store as a cashier. And like, if I was on the late shift when there wasn't anybody there, I'd just be sitting behind my register, like thumbing through that catalog. And it'd be like, wow, this is a really cool place. There's a, there's a lot of, a lot of neat, neat stuff here. And then, you know, then kind of once I got the offer, I'm like, okay, how do you, how do you turn that down? I mean, I know people do, but like, I'm like, no, at that, at that point, it kind of, kind of felt like, all right, this is, this is a chance to to go off and do something that is completely different. Like I, I was, I was, I was fairly certain that, you know, I'd fit in fine at LSU and in, 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 
um, and all, all would be good. Uh, but I kind of harken back like Zach's my, my son, Zach's at VMI now, and their sort of tagline is don't do ordinary. And I think that kind of sums up how I decided on West Point. I'm like, okay, I know a lot of people who going to LSU and I know a lot of people who are going to LSU. I don't know anybody who's been to West Point and I don't know anybody else who's going to West Point. So I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to take this leap and try and be different. So when you, when you went to West Point, did you bring the whole family up? Did you guys drive up there for our day? Did you get dropped off? Or did you fly up there? What, what was your, what was your day one like? So, so my, my day one, was, I got on an airplane in, in, in New Orleans by myself um, got off at where they said probably LaGuardia, uh, get on a bus and got in that giant hotel that they put all the, the cadets in before they bus them to West Point. And that, that's like that, Jamie, was the first time I'd ever heard of such a thing as plebe knowledge. Because wow. there were people in that hotel who kind of, who, who like already knew what you know the definition of so, level. Had you done a visit? Had you done a visit or anything? Or like, had you, had you had you done a visit as like to, to up to West Point to see what it was like? Did you do like an official visit? Yes, I, I did do that. I did do the overnight uh, visit in the bar and and um and my dad took me on that, which which is which doesn't sound surprising to anybody, but it is very surprising to me because my dad hates to fly. That may be like the only time, other than when the army sh shipped him overseas, um, that he's actually been on an airplane. But he got uh -huh. on that airplane for me to bring me to West Point, and, wow. I, and I, I'm still very appreciative of that to this day. And I can remember, um, I had already accepted at that point. I know because we went down to uh, what was then Marine Midland Bank, and I opened a checking account. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we we knew already at that point that I that I was going. <laughs> Matt Sampson says that you were, he was your roommate the night before uh, at the hotel. Uh, he said, uh, I think the hotel was a park central in Manhattan. Bunch of us stayed there and rode buses at the West Point in the morning. Yep. That, that is right. <laughs> so you already said your goodbyes. Like you're like, like you're like emotionally, you're like, you're all in on our day. Whereas like a lot of us who got dropped off, you're saying goodbye. You still have that sort of like, uh that kind of fear fear struck in look in your face like oh my god i just think about it, my parents but that was two days prior to you like you're just you're just on a mission at that point right yeah that, that that's exactly it and and so you know when they when they, they they give you the you know you have 30 seconds to say goodbye to your family or whatever i, I imagine they still do that yeah, that would be a recent memory for you i would imagine um like i didn't i didn't have anybody to do that with it's kind of <laughs> sad isn't it? it's kind of like like you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs, you're watching everybody else saying goodbye. You're like, I got nobody, you know? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Because because going through it uh, with with Zach at, at via by it was it, it was a very emotional event, right? Me and his mom giving him giving him that that last hug, and and you know, it, it, you think about it. I try to think about it first. Like, what do you tell your kid when they're going they're going to do that? And you got those those precious few few seconds. Uh, yeah, it 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 is. Yeah, but for me that all don't happened. quit, man. Don't quit is what you tell them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, Jamie, if I recall, we you, you had a guest on your podcast where like uh, where their parents told them, "Don't worry, you could always come back home." Right? <laughs> and they were like, "There's I, a couple." I'm not sure that was the right thing. <laughs> There's a couple. I think Lori Ryder. I think Lori Ryder's dad leaned in and said, "I pre-purchased a ticket for you. You can leave whenever you want." Lori Ryder. <laughs> and, my mom every time she came up she goes just get in the car man you don't have to do this and my dad be like shut up he's doing this that's my, my mom too my mom was like i would complain to my mom she said i'll come off there i'll pick you up right now and just come home I'm yeah. like, i need you to 
push back, you know? <laughs> Mark Beeger, I think Mark Beeger also tells a story. His uncle was like a DMI professor or something. So he was already up there. And he like hugged him and said, no, don't screw this up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, so you, so tell me about your first day, our day, like you're, you show up, you're in the, the mighty, mighty third squad of company F1, right? Mighty, mighty right. F&Ls with uh, Dean Docterman. You were in my squad with me. We're yeah. beasts. I, we, we met on the first day, the, by the first day at West Point. I'm sure we did. Right. You know, yeah. so what was that like? Uh, and I, I had, you know, we, maybe the same for everybody, but it is like, I, that day is a, is a complete blur. I remember at one point thinking, I really need to get some water at some, at some point. <laughs> and I'm like, am I even allowed to go use the bathroom at, at any point? And, 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 you know, coming up to the, to the white line and stepping up to the white line, but not on the white line. And I didn't tell you to drop your bags and, and all, all of that. Uh, reporting to the first sergeant company F1 for the first time as ordered. I, yes. Um, looking back, you know, the, the inability to correctly enunciate that one little phrase uh, seems, seems silly now, but man, it was, it was like a life altering uh, requirement back, <laughs> back then. I remember back squaring us all away, showing us, showing us how to make the beds and all that kind of stuff. We had like a little, like a little, squad meeting he's like Gary, everybody take a knee i'm gonna i'll show you guys what to do or something i'm <laughs> yeah. back and us away so so we and eddie you were were you in fourth squad you're in fourth squad right with van Valkenburg? first squad first squad. yeah van Valkenburg was first squad yep randy chris jim montgomery chris harlan uh al baker who unfortunately left that summer he's a good guy by the way I've been, looking, I've been looking for that dude trying to find trying to connect with al baker his name is too generic to find. Al Baker. There's like Al, it's Alex Baker from Stone Mountain, Georgia. I've looked that dude. I've tried to find him so many different times. What a good dude he was, and he he yeah, left. He was. Yeah. Um. Who was who was your roommate, Chuck? For for Beast, was it Moran? Yeah, it was Steve. Yeah, Steve Moran. Yeah. Steve Moran. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And the the thing I remember one most about Steve is that when, when he when he polished shoes, he managed to get more shoe polish on him than the shoes. Yeah. <laughs> um, any particularly memorable moments from Beast or from that that summer? Um. No, that that for me, it it really was just all of kind of kind of a blur i mean i'm a guy from a small town in, in south louisiana and got all kinds of all kinds of new friends um probably you know all, all at once and just what i remember most is just the the teamwork and the and the pulling together uh that 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 made an impact uh on me um how well uh we were able to do that now i mean i, mean, I got it the whole system is designed to to be able to uh be able to do that i also do distinctly remember um well two things one recognizing that although i'd always been a, a pretty fair athlete you know um grow, growing up that i would i was definitely not even in the middle of the pack when it came to west point <laughs> as far as athletics and every and everything went um so that was telling. And then I, for some reason, I remember one time during beast, uh, like we ended up in a, in a huge 
dogpile for some reason. Like we we went to get somebody's guide on or, or something else, and like at the encouragement of some of the cadre, while the rest of the cadre were were admonishing us for breaking ranks. And I'm like, okay, this is weird. We can't do both of these things. Like, which one of you am I supposed to listen to? <laughs> so I think we all opted to listen to the one that was most fun, and we just took off after <laughs> after the guide on. I remember you being particularly squared away, like like you 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 learned the knowledge pretty easily. You were you were not really being yelled at that much. I I remember. Uh, Come like on, you, Jim. You were the poster child of squared away a beast. No, that's the opposite. <laughs> that's the opposite. What I'm getting to is that I felt like there was a couple of heat magnets in our platoon that drew a lot of fire from others. Eddie, I think you were one of those people. And yes, I, sir. I think I was one of those people, right? And Chris Clater was the last one. Without question, right? And so at yeah. the end at the end of uh, Chris Clater, at the end of uh, Beast, just as it would so happen, they put together the academic rooms <clears> and they got Schleck, Bayuth, and Clater in one room. We're supposed to be a triple for a first semester plebe year. And I think some of the summer cadre said, this right here, is a three alarm dumpster fire. If we allow these three, <laughs> if we allow, if we allow these three nitwits to be in the same room, it is going to be a horrible experience for everybody. So they decided, and their infinite was in their in the wisdom is that we're gonna move Schleck. He'll room with Poche because Poche will square his ass away, and will and because it's supposed to be Bax and Poche and Dave Baxter and Poche. They moved Baxter in with you guys, as I recall. And that's how thankfully, they yeah, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know, it just kind of goes to point out the wisdom of those upperclassmen, right? Because every one of us graduated. That's right. So, all five. All five of those people yeah, they, graduated. Yeah. Yeah. They made they made the right call. Yeah. It worked out. We would have had a good time, Eddie. I would have been laughing my ass off, but we probably would have spent a lot yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah. We'd have we'd have made it first yeah. semester, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> So Chuck, you and I were roommates first semester, which was awesome. That was awesome. Yeah. I got I got direct access to Mrs. Poche's Pralines, <laughs> and you got uh, Mr. Schleck's Big Ziti, mm -hmm. and uh, we got to hang out. You know, I was recently reading. I kept a journal of the first of the first year. I, I used to write in it like like probably two three times a week, and I was reading to my daughter like right before Christmas leave what it was like because she was coming home for Christmas leave. And in my journal, I wrote because you stayed at my house the night before, Chuck. That's right. Yeah. And and I said we we're. I said I'm going to corrupt Chuck Poche. We're going to go to New York City. <laughs> we're, I'm, going to, I'm going to corrupt him. So, but uh, yeah, those were good times. I I do recall also, you know, um, being from Louisiana, you had never seen snow before. So tell me no, about I had that. Not. <laughs> so uh and I I remember like I I actually I woke you up to have you look at it because it was so incredible to me and what I remember is your, you you actually asked me if it was blue or not yeah. and I said no and you said then I don't care I'm from Jersey I've seen it before <laughs> I think it was like a Saturday or Sunday like the one yeah, day like the like bed. you know you're I, like I waking me up you're like a little kid on Christmas on Christmas morning like wake up wake up it's snowing outside I'm like Snow? I don't give a shit about snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That that was definitely a that was a memorable one for me for for sure. I had I had not seen that, and I, I broke the golden rule, right? Like it's babies and cadets, you just don't wake them up when they're sleeping. You just let them mm -hmm. sleep. 
So, so Chuck, you mentioned VMI, that your son, Zach, goes to VMI. One thing that I don't think I, I didn't have as much of an appreciation for at VMI was just how important that institution is to the state of Virginia. Like those, those people are so wired up down in Virginia. Like it is a major, major force to be reckoned with if you are part of the VMI network. So you're mentioning your son, like he's no longer in Louisiana and he's more, mostly Virginian, but that he, he'll be... He'll be totally uh, connected down there. Um, but what, what, the reason why I mention this is because I would I would get in a lot of trouble as a plea. We knew this, right? I was I was always the heat magnet, and you as my roommate were in trouble by association, right? You're like, you know, Jose, can't you square that square that guy away? What the hell's going on? So we used to have to report in full dress day under arms to our squad leader like every morning for a while it's like a punishment right so that was like our kind of haze thing you know but you were mentioned vmi they don't mess around right they have like these sweat rooms or tell me what that's like how that's different from west point the whole yeah so it, it so it was interesting because you know there were some things that i could kind of prepare zach for but it, it is a it is a different institution it's got its own tradition it's its own approaches um but they're rats i mean they have what they call a, a is sweat party, which is, you know, it's, it's on the schedule unbeknownst to the rats. I mean, it's approved by the commandant. It's not like it's, it's, it's in the dark kind of thing. And, you know, they've got, they've got their cadet uh, EMT paramedics there and all that. So all the safety stuff is in place, but they, it's basically, it, it's, it's a sanctioned period of physical hazing, right? They, they put them all in, in a room and, and they sweat them out and they yell at them and they, you know, Hey, why, you know, just, um, you know, browbeat them for their inability to do push-ups, which is something I'm familiar with from my time at West Point. Um, and it, it do that kind of thing. That 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 kind of sort of physical exertion hazing, like we didn't have in an official way that I recall as a plebe. Like it, it may have happened, but it was definitely something the TAC didn't didn't know about. If it if it did, we had more of the corrective training kind of hazing that that you're talking about and i think we can both agree jamie that that sh it was sharon decrane who kept us really straight <laughs> she was superstar all no. four women awful you know you think about that all four women were so strong as cadets they yeah. really were and they, they they were unflappable and they also never ever turned on each other that i know of i mean they're always just like um superstars you know yeah. but you're right sharon was definitely cut above but they all were you know yeah. you know yeah, I, was right. about, I was thinking about something to, to digress for one second sure. seeing you both on the screen reminds me of something i was going to point out which is that your faith chuck is a big part of your life this has guided you your whole life right i think you were pretty devout catholic in the, all the events of west point eddie you too same thing i think a huge part of your life and I, I think of like if I were to think of like who would be another pretty devout spiritual um, company mate, it would be it'd be Julie Wood. I think she was pretty also pretty devout. Um, just how did that affect your experience at West Point? Maybe your career, who you are today? Like how does that how does that manifest itself in 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 your leadership, etc.? You you want to go first, Eddie? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a golden rule. Do unto others. And, uh, you know, you kid around a lot. And God knows I'm no saint, uh, you know, probably on the other end. So I need to be, uh, you know, looking to the man upstairs for some, you know, help. But, uh, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's everything. It, it really is. It's how you live your life. And, uh, you know, when Jamie was in the DR, when they came for the little Friar Palooza, we went to the cathedral, you know, it's Sunday, we have to go to mass and, uh, you know, that that's, that's how it is. Sunday is a day to go to mass. And once you do that, you can do whatever you want the rest of the day, but that's, uh, same with West Point, Billy, Sean, Dave and I would go to mass every Sunday. And that was just, that was just to be expected. You know, it was Sunday, you went to mass. So I, I don't think I could have made it out of that place without it or through the army or through deployment or, you know, through mortar attacks or whatever, you know, it, it you're always looking for the man upstairs. So it, it, it's, yeah, but the most important thing. Yeah, and just to echo what what Eddie said, it, it really is just you know your 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 personal relationship um, with the higher power, with God. It it, it is it is is important. Um, it, it it will guide you in ways that you not, not even necessarily consciously kind of kind of understand, right? But you know, I was de definitely raised Catholic with a Catholic middle school, Catholic high school. Came into West Point. Um, a lot of devout Catholics down there in South Louisiana, right? Our football team is the Saints, not not for no reason. <laughs> so so that was always always part of my 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 background, um, and it it sort it just in, kind of informs the way that 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 you think about things, and it, it doesn't you know be overt about it or or whatever. You know, some people would take offense to that. You don't you know. Um, Try, you know, impart your beliefs on on others, or assume that they think the same way same way as you. Uh, we each have our own uh, relationship uh, with with how we approach life, but definitely, yeah, faith is a big big part of that. Well, I've all, I've always definitely looked up to both of you two for your commitment to that, and I think it's so admirable. So, um, so Chuck, let's fast forward a little bit to the cadet time. As a cow, you get selected to be an exchange cadet because you're a star man. You know, you're you're crushing it. And so you get selected to go and you choose to go to the Air Force Academy, right? Right. Um, I, I tell people jokingly, I'm like, yeah, the best semester I spent at West Point was at the Air Force Academy. Um, because <laughs> it, it, the weekend I arrived is like, okay, this was this was this is my introduction. I go into the guy who become a pretty good, pretty good buddy. I go across the hall into his his dorm room, right? Because they live in dorms, not not, not barracks. Um and he's in there and his girlfriend's in his civilian girlfriend's in there with him with like a six pack of beer. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is not the place that, that I am from. This is, this is very different. Uh, did that, I guess such things are okay at the Air Force Academy. Well, it turned out to not be okay because he had to sit a whole bunch of tours <laughs> for that when it became discovered, which worked out well for me because we were cows. So he had a, he was able to have a car there. Cows have cars there. So I got to use his car because he couldn't go anywhere because he was on, he was on restriction, but yeah, it was, it was, it was very much different. It was, it was fascinating, a whole different um, sort of a military, military culture. Who who else was there with you? Which, which other classmates were there with you? Do you, do you recall? Um. Uh, Andy Gorski, I think, was there with me, and and uh, how can I? I'm I'm forget our our command sergeant major, um, Bernie. Bernie, last name. Not Bernie Christensen, obviously. No, yes. no. Um, our CSM. Yes, yeah, our CSM. Our CSM was would have been a cow, right? Because the cows are our CSMs. Well, the 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 brigade level when you're when you're a firstie, the the 
Why am I blanking on his day? I went to his Sorry. wedding down in Auburn. <laughs> Mike, this is maybe Mike Ellis, Rick Bernie. Rick, Rick Bernie. Bernie, that's it, yeah, Bernie. Yeah. yeah. We're getting some help from the chat. Thank you. Yeah, Rick Bernie. Yes. Yeah. I, I, see, I did. Oh, okay. Apologies to Rick. I did have it right. I did say Bernie. <laughs> and Dennis Ziegler. Dennis Ziegler was there yep. too. He was there too. And, yep. That yeah. that is correct. So, do they um, put you all together like in a room and say, "Hey, well, first of all, do they say, listen, you guys get in trouble. You reflect negatively on the kid on the on a core of cadets on West Point. This is going to be really bad. It's going to be your ass, right? Any any like any like talking to like that or." No, I I don't remember sort of that that kind of pre-brief, but I remember I do remember a couple things. Like my time there, um, our tack from West Point went there as an exchange tack, right? The um, and that did not go over well at all with the Corps of Cadets at the U.S. Air Force Academy. They were not accustomed to that level of tackness, I should say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then I can remember we all got an audience one time with with their commandant, right? Their one star. And so he was asking us, you know, how we viewed things and the differences. And I remember he specifically asked about the Air Force's lights out policy. And I, my response to him was, sir, I was not aware that we had a lights out policy, <laughs> which <laughs> because it certainly wasn't enforced at all. I mean, I can remember wandering around the the door was there at all, all, all hours of the night. And I think he made a mental note of that because a little later we got some more heightened enforcement of the air force Academy's lights, lights out the poli- mm-hmm. um, policy. So my apologies to the folks at the air force Academy that apparently I brought that upon, but it was a, it was a fascinating uh, experience. I mean, they, you know, I got to do stuff there that we just don't have at West point. You know, they have like a, it, what the, they call the soar for all program where you actually get to soar you get to solo a glider um, aircraft you know, which looking back now as, you know, seems very risky to me to put somebody up there to solo themselves, but they've got a great training program. And I guess, you know, the cadets don't kill or injure themselves doing it or else they they would discontinue it. I'm sure, but that was fantastic. But what I remember most was how different the sort of the PE was because for PE, I took scuba diving and pistol which does not exactly track with, you know, um, things that would prepare you for the IOCT upon your return. Got a question here from our class president, Chuck, uh, I mean, uh, Scott Clemenson. Yeah, he's wondering if you remember them releasing the blue chickens on the field when we played them uh, at the at the Air Force Army game. Uh, we, we had these blue chickens that we released on the field. So so here here's here's the here's the funny part. I was not at that game. They flew us in, if I remember right, a C-130 from the U.S. Air Force Academy to the Naval Academy to watch Air Force Navy play, but they did not bring us to the Army Air Force game. Really? Yeah, which, which, which I thought was like, bizarre i'm like this is what then now we do the prisoner exchange we make a big deal about it but you didn't get to do that huh no we didn't get to do and i don't know if maybe and and who knows as far enough if some aircraft got scratched or whatever but or was i away doing something else maybe Mm -hmm. (laughs) um rick burn you were sitting tours chuck come on man yeah, maybe That's I was sitting up. tours. No, I, I I did not sit any tours at the Air, Air Force Academy. Uh, no, I did not. Uh, but but yeah. Uh, Are you still in touch with any of the folks from Air Force Academy? You stay in touch with any of the guys that you were there with? No, I, I will tell you, I, I regret it to this day. Uh, it's like I, I really would love to look up some of those folks, and I certainly do do remember their names. The guys that that I was tight with, our classmates. Uh, 
you know, Paul Villum and, and Joe Swick and, and uh, folks like that. Uh, it, it would be, it would be a lot of fun to link up with them, with them again. Uh, Look them up, man. Life's short. Do it. Yeah. I, you, you're right. You're, but, but Jamie, you know better than most what a raging introvert Chuck Poche is. <laughs> start with start with just a text message or an email you know (laughs) that's right yeah facebook (laughs) yeah facebook they slip into their dms that's what you gotta do you know um but you know so uh they're they're on the on the text here they are remembering the story of these blue chickens that were released on the field and i i recall this too what happened was was somebody had a bunch of chickens that they put out on the field when the i think when the falcon was flying or something or making fun of the you know, the Falcons, and one of the Air Force cadets on national TV ripped the head off of one of the chickens. Uh, like, you know, good old Southern boy, like not, uh, not the Osborne type. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so some, somebody got in trouble for that. So, yeah. uh, so, so Chuck, then you, you commission armor, right? So that's like the branch that you choose. Yep. And you were in that, so you were in that group of OBC armor guys. Um, you know, the, I think the, our last armor officer still on active duty, Charlie Costanza, yep. now taken over as uh, fit, the fifth corps commander, lieutenant general, soon to be Charlie Costanza. Congratulations to him. Oh, congratulations to Charlie for sure. Yeah, and so um, so tell me about about that co- co- commissioning um, armor, going to armor basics uh, course, going to ranger school, and uh, and you got some ranger school stories. And, <laughs> Who doesn't, right? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you got a, you got a, you got a really you got a really good one though. So yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll tell that one. I think I've told it enough. So um, yeah, so com- commissioned armor, uh, great great um, initial experience in the army. Went went the the third ACR back when it was still an ACR, and back when it was still at Fort Bliss. So went went to Fort Bliss uh, to be a be a cavalryman, uh, served in a, in a squadron in a troop, uh, with our classmate, Scott Gerber, he and I are still fast friends. He lives just a couple miles down the road. We, we see each other all the time. Um, and that was just a, a, a great environment, uh, to grow up in with all that training area right out, right out that gate and just having a, a fantastic time, uh, doing, doing what lieutenants do. Um, before that, uh, went to, went to ranger school in route to that first, uh, duty assignment um that 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 ended okay um ended with with me in in martin army hospital um it it was is the way the way it happened um is i got uh during the during the buddy rappel at mount yono or whatever i ended up slamming against the rocks on the side of the the cliff there and i opened a little cut in my leg which was really not not that big a deal until until we got to florida and walked around in the swamps for a couple of days so it got it got infected, and it kind of kind of started seeing these red streaks going up and down my leg, and it kind of feels like I have a, like a groin pull. So I go to one of the guys in our squad who was a special forces uh, medic in his in his real life, not ranger school life, and I say, "Dude, what what's wrong with me?" And, and he said, "He says, dude, you have cellulitis," and and I can remember responding to him, "I'm like, dude." I'm in ranger school. I cannot be overweight. I don't have cellulite. He's not, not, mm-hmm. no, not cellulite, you idiot. It's cellulitis. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? He says, it's a blood infection. I said, I said, well, okay. And then to this, and I use this as a cautionary tale with my son, JB. I, I, to this day, I still remember what I said. This is the question that I asked him to just show you how, how dumb second lieutenants can be, right? Right. This series of questions. Can it kill me? 
And he's like, yeah, you can, you can die from this. And then this question, will it kill me before graduation? And he said, no, it probably won't kill you from gra before graduation. Then I said, okay, I'm fine. And so we finished the last, uh, the last, the last couple of days uh, there, and we were all done at that point, and we we're like back at Eglin, you know, eating M and M's or or whatever. And uh, I'm like, okay, now it's time to go see the doctor. So I go see the see the doc because you get like 24 hours of sick call time at, at Ranger School or whatever, right before you got to medically recycle. So I'd been on sick call yet, so I had had a little bit of time. The doc's like, yeah, you got cellulitis, you know. Here are these pills. Take take these, and when you get back to Fort Benning, tell them that you're taking these pills and that's what you got. And I say, okay, no, yeah, no problem. So we get on that bus to go back to Benning. And for the first time in forever, I get to take off my boots. So when I wake up at Fort Benning and we go to put our boots and stuff back on, like Jamie, my foot is like this big around, like it's as big as a football. Like I am not getting that boot back on. So now, now I'm like on crutches and I go into a little sick bay and I still I hear this doctor playing his day. He's like, damn Ranger, that's the worst case of cellulitis I've ever seen. And he starts taking pictures of it. So I think I'm now part of that Ranger. Don't let this happen to you. Brief that they give you in Ranger School. <laughs> so, so, so you know, we're we're finishing up. We're practicing for graduation, and I can remember I'm sitting in the bleachers there at Victory Pond as they practice for graduation, and there's this Ranger Sergeant or whatever next to me, and he's, he's and I and I turn to him and I say, Sergeant, what am what am I doing tomorrow for graduation? And and he looks at me. He says, Ranger, Rangers do not hobble from the woods on crutches. So for graduation tomorrow, you're going to be sitting in the bleachers right where you are right now. And so I asked him, I said, Sergeant, if that is the case, do you think anybody would mind if maybe I went to the hospital instead? And he looked at my foot and he looked at me. He said, Ranger, if I was you, I'd have been there yesterday. So, <laughs> so I went, so there I went off, off to the hospital, still with it by sick call time limit or whatever. And as they're pushing me through the emergency room doors there at Martin Army Hospital is when my mom and my sister arrive for Ranger school graduation, just in time to see them push me through those doors. And my mom turns to my sister and says, Oh my God, they killed him. Did you see him? <laughs> so uh, the next morning they came by and pinned my Ranger tab on my hospital pajamas. And so I tabbed out from, from the hospital bed, which, which to this day, I still occasionally get questions for because people are like, Hey, you're not in the graduation picture. Why is that? <laughs> I say, well, because I was in the hospital. Uh, so, you know, talking about a higher power, right. And things happen for a reason. Well, because of that, my following orders to airborne school got canceled. So I couldn't go to airborne school. Um, and then I got some convalescent leave cause I was in the hospital for a long time. Like I watched cellulitis Rangers come and go. And I was still the guy sitting there because my case was so, so advanced. So I got some convalescent leave after that. And that's the only reason why I had enough time to set a date with my fiance and marry her en route to my first duty assignment at Fort Bliss. So um, if it takes a little cellulitis to get Rene Bourgeois Poche into your life, I will take the cellulitis every time. So <laughs> that's how that worked out. <laughs> so then, um, so then you serve your first assignment, you, you platoon XO battalion staff time, and then you decide you're going to apply for the army fully funded legal program, right? Right. You went the advanced course first, right? Yeah. Well, I was at the advanced course when I got when I got word that um, that I had been been selected. I can remember I submitted my packet. Uh, it made it up to uh, up to D.C. while I was at the National Training Center on the last National Training Center rotation before the before the regiment moved out to Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I got notified uh, while I was at the Army Advanced Course. I remember my my small group instructor who was a Marine uh, for me looked at me and says, "Well." 
now to be clear, if you fail this course, you're not going to law school. Right. And I said, uh, no, sir, I'm pretty sure even if I failed out of the armor advanced course, I'm still going to law school. And he just looked at this guy and says, now, how am I supposed to motivate Captain Poche? <laughs> so you went to then you went to UVA, right? For law school. Yes. Mm-hmm. And did you have any military like requirements while you're there? Do you have to like do a AT or something or like you, you do like a full blown civilian? Like you are you are a full blown civilian except for you know, two instances. Like it's the army, so you still got to do a PT test. Um, and then during the summer, they will send you to do on the job training at 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 some. Uh, local um jag office or if depending on what the money situation is in dc things that i didn't understand before i went to dc and was actually the chief of plans dealing with the the budget for the jag corps um in years when 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 there was tdy money available you could go tdy somewhere to do that so like i went to the 82nd airborne division my, my first summer the second summer there was no tdy money available so they said well you're right there in charlottesville you can go to the judge advocate general school right there in charlottesville and do your time with them um that didn't sound as fun to me as being somewhere like Fort Bragg. So I said, Hey, if I do it at no cost to the army, will you send me to Fort Bragg? And they said, yeah, if we don't have to pay you per diem and, and uh, lodging and all that. You find a, find a place to live or whatever on your own dime. We're happy to do that. So, so that's what I did. I found some, uh, some buddies down there and stayed with them that summer and did my OJT at the, at the core level uh, that summer. But those are the only, those are the only requirements. Does Renee come with you on those things or does she go back home or like when you did the summer stuff? No, she did not. Uh, she did not come like she would uh, come to visit or whatever. I mean, we were, we were right there down in North Carolina, but it, it was just like a, it was really was a TDY. So it wasn't accompanied or, or anything. And um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, we didn't, we didn't have uh, kids yet at the time. So that, that wasn't, wasn't an issue, but no, uh, she didn't spend that whole time with me no so one of your classmates going through uva with you a jag officer was our fallen classmate right um pete graff yeah pete pete was was uh head of me in in law school i believe so I, so i didn't know him didn't know him that well didn't interact with him um that that much there it really i really got to know pete um, when we were both in the, the judge advocate, uh, advanced course together, because later on, when, by the time you pin on, pin on major that you go back to Charlottesville to get an advanced legal degree in, in military law. And, and Pete was in my, my class, my, my grad course class, what we, as we refer to it in the JAG Corps. And you also did Bible study with him. You got to know him pretty well, I think, right? Yeah, it, it was, uh, it wasn't really like a, a Bible study. It was sort of like, a, I guess I'd characterize it as kind of a men's group. Uh, there was some religious stuff that that we would read, you know, lessons from uh, various faiths and stuff, but it really was focused on trying to, okay, how do you, how do you be a good dad? How do you be a good person? How do you raise, you know, a son in this day and age and this culture? Like what values are you trying to import on your children and that kind of stuff? So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily focused on the Bible, though that did inform some of it, but there were a lot of, of, of uh, guys in the class who, who put in, you know, that, that time once a week to just sit around and, and talk about those things that, that, you know, you may, you may feel as a, as a new dad, or even been a dad a while or whatever, or that, you know, who do you talk to about stuff like that? And just to know that you got other people around you who are going through the same thing and, and having the same questions and such and being able to talk it out was just was just fantastic. Um, so Pete was definitely he, a part of that group. But he was privately suffering at a different level, I think, right? Because it was there that 
it was there that we lost him to suicide was in, in right at that course, right? You were, you were there, you were classmate with him, right? Like, what was that experience? Yeah, I, I can, I can remember that, they, they, you know, they called us all into the, to the grad course room there in, in the, in the building to, to sort of inform us all at once um, that, that uh, Pete had taken his own life. Um, and it was, it was just stunning because none of us had any idea that he, he was going through that level of, of, of pain. Uh, you know, Pete was the guy we all, we all sort of turned to, to help us work through, work through our issues. And, and, and I've thought about that a lot and say, you know, what, did we miss something? What did and you, you just don't know. It just goes to show that you really, you just don't know what's going on in some inside somebody's head. And all you can do is try and be as open as possible so that you would hope that, that they would, they would open up to you um, if, if they need it. But that's, that's why, you know, mental health services and, and all of those things are, or so absolutely uh, important uh, you, because, you know, when we lost Pete to that, we, we lost one of our best for sure. You know, I don't know if you listened to the podcast I did with Vince Lindemeyer and Dennis Gillen, who was a kind of a subject matter expert in this area. And he's, and one of the advice, one of the points he made during that, I think is you got to go right at it. You know, don't beat around the bush. Don't say like, how you doing? It's all good. You say, how's your mental health? You know, have you thought about hurting yourself? Like just, just to be there, like, you know, right, like to make it so that it's like there's there's no wiggling around the conversation. And so, um, you know, I, I think Pete was in my company as a, as a lieutenant uh, at Fort Eustis, you know, and, and you know, he, he was um, he was a, a dynamite officer. We know that. And he was super committed to his troops and was was a great was was also devout, very uh, active with the faith community there. And I just, I, you know, it's, it's a mystery to all of us still, right? We just, we lost a really good person, a really great classmate there. Uh, but how is it that we can take from that horrible experience and then also have it be an ongoing conversation for ourselves? Because, you know, we know that, you know, look at the statistics, we're all at risk, right? You, you've got, you know, a higher, a higher incidence of, of mental health um well, I, a higher instance of, of, of suicidality because of our experience with weapons and, and whatnot. So it's important for us to, to always be out there and be thinking about it, normalizing that conversation. Right. Yeah. So, um, so, so then, so Chuck, then you move forward here into in a, a bunch of increasing levels of responsibility, high level roles, advising very important uh, on very important issues with with commanders and, and leaders of the army. So can you give me some of the highlights of your army career as you move from like say the advanced course to, to your retirement? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it, 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 it's not un, unusual in the JAG course or the, 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 the arc that it took. Um, I went from the advanced course <laughs> had, believe it or not, another near death experience with the, with, with the Ranger regiment. Um, uh, but because of that, I ended up uh, working with the Department of the Army Inspector General, where I did nothing for two years but investigate general officers. Like any complaint against a general officer in the Army can't be investigated at any other level. It goes to DAIG for all the, the one and two stars and the, the three and four go up to the DOD. But that was a fantastic developmental assignment because for all of the rest of my career, like I had a firm understanding about what it is when it comes to the conduct of senior officials that the Army considers to be extremely important what's forgivable, what's, what's a sin that you can, you can, can be forgiven, you know, go back on my Catholic faith. And what is one of those things that the, you know, what are those things that the army is going to have to draw a line and your, your, your career is probably going to have to end as a result of, of X, Y, or Z. So that was a huge developmental, 
um, assignment for me. And from there, I went to what was by far my favorite job in, in the Army JAG Corps, and that was to be what was new at the time, was to be a brigade judge advocate, to be back at the brigade level uh, and directly advising the brigade commander. Uh, and for me, it was it was a fantastic experience. I had a fantastic uh, brigade commander and we had a 15 month deployment to Iraq at the height of the surge during that. So you can imagine all of the issues and things that came up with that. And you're the lawyer on the ground right there. And, you know, there's you are going to going to answer those questions and, and make those hard calls. And, and you will on occasion. And I would caution young captains about this sometimes, like sometimes on those kinds of occasions, you're you're called upon to issue what I consider to be the ultimate legal opinion. And that is a legal opinion that ends in a question of whether or not you can kill somebody, right? Like this is the targeting packet. This is the individual, or this is what's on the screen in, in, in the ops center. The commander is going to, the commander is absolutely going to make the call. That's the commander's job, but the commander wants legal advice before the commander makes the call. And in that moment, like you got, you got everything you know about the ROE and the situation on the ground and, and, the, and the current policies and, 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 the tolerance for risk and all of those things. Yes, the commander is is, is going is going to make that call, but you are called upon to to issue that advice. And all the folks in that room are looking at looking at you because they know the commander trusts you and trusts your advice. And the commander is going to make the decision based on that. And and there's no appeal if you tell them pull the lanyard on that howitzer. That round's going down range. It it is you're not going to get it back. And those folks at the other end of that, they're going to figure out really quick whether or not all those promises they've been made about the afterlife are actually going to be be honored by their higher power, right? Um, and, you know, you, you could practice in the civilian world for decades before somebody trusts you with a capital case, a case where somebody's life is on the line. And even if, you know, I got to think that the folks who do those cases, they have in the back of their mind somewhere that, look, even if I kind of mess this up, the Supreme Court's got my back, right? This person is not going to be going to go to the uh, the electric chair because I messed something up. There's no appeal to those calls in in, in combat. Um, so so that that uh, was uh, both very. It's just awesome the amount of responsibility that you have in having a situation uh, like that, uh, and into to be with a group of folks who trust you to give that kind of advice, I think was just phenomenal. The folks that I worked with uh, there um, were just amazing people at all levels, all levels of the staff. Uh, so that was a, that was a great assignment. And then, then from there I did uh, some time, a little time in the schoolhouse and then, you know, became a deputy um, SJ at the 18th airborne Corps, which I, I will tell you, Eddie was talking earlier about, yeah, things are things are different at 50 than they were at, at 30 or 40. I, I tell you what, I, I, jumping out of airplanes after 40 is not a good idea. <laughs> like, I, like I hadn't jumped in about 13 years <laughs> before that assignment. And uh, you just don't bounce off the ground at 42 like you did at 22. So how many more jumps did you have then? Um, so I'd have to pull out, pull out my, my jump log. Thankfully, not very many because both my time as a deputy at 18th Airborne Corps and then later on in obviously even older as the SJA at 18th Airborne Corps. I was only one year at, at Fort Bragg because I was deployed the other year. So I only had to do, I only had to do those once a quarter uh, jumps. So I probably didn't get more than about 10, 10 or 12 additional jumps beyond, beyond my five. Uh, but, but yeah, some of, some of them hurt. I'm, I'm a, I know that those great black hats at, at Fort Benning tried their best, but I am still a freaking feet butt head kind of PLF guy. <laughs> so. Yeah, Jamie. Uh, it's funny. I used to go to Iraq quite a bit, and I was maybe three buildings down from Chuck, and I never knew it. 
at at liberty or uh, yeah victory <clears throat> we were at the juicer the where the c1 was at and i think the sja was two or three buildings down and i i didn't find out till later that you've been there the whole time i was going to iraq that stinks yeah we, we yeah. Could have, definitely could have linked up but you guys did have some kind of interaction, right? There was a situation that happened with mail fraud or something, Eddie, that Chuck was involved with. Do you guys had an opportunity to connect? No, to yeah, be yeah, we I talked about getting mail fraud. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it wasn't. Uh, he was innocent. Uh, no, he, he, you know, that's one of the things I frowned upon and looked down upon was anybody that was stealing mail or stealing packets. And I remember Chuck calling, you know, do we prosecute these guys? I'm like, hell yeah, you throw the book at him, man. This is... You know, Joe is waiting for his wife to send him something and somebody's going to steal it or he's sending his wife a ring and somebody steals it on the way out. That, to me, that was unforgivable. That, that was a, a mortal sin as far as I was concerned. So, yeah, that was the advice. Throw the book at him. Yeah. And uh, so, Chuck, who, what other classmates had you interacted with along the way? I mean, I know there was this one day and I felt like I was like on official military business because um <laughs> Because Moose George was doing something with the uh, with the Army budget, right? And he and and there was there was a memo that was signed by none other than Chuck Poche, right? And he's working on a weekend, putting this shit together. He, I think he's a one star at the time, or a yep. colonel. And he's like, he texts me or calls me, hey man, I need Chuck Poche's cell phone. I was like, I got it. <laughs> Let me connect you on my. I connect you on my on my cipernet here. So, but who else, who else did you connect with in the army that you had like work with? I, I tell you, probably probably the most recurring thread is our our classmate Scott Gerber. Um, like I said, he and I were lieutenants together. Um, I will say we we got our rights read to us together as as lieutenants. Although he denies he got his rights read to him, I'm I, I'm right pretty right sure he he did. Um, and then um. I was when I had that brigade judge advocate job advising that that brigade commander. Um, he was also on on Fort Hood at the time, so we connected there. And just to show you kind of the level of trust that goes with your army buddies, like we bought our house in Colleen, Texas, because Scott and Sandy Gerber told us to buy it. We had never seen it. We had never walked through it. We knew nothing about it. All we knew was that Scott and Sandy said it was the perfect house for us. And so we bought it sight unseen and it absolutely was the perfect house for us. But think about the level of trust it is to, to buy a house um, just because somebody told you to. Uh, but they've been great friends uh, throughout throughout our time. Um, I've bumped into folks now and again. I, I bumped into, uh, I worked with Charlie Costanza when, when he was uh, both a, a brigade commander at, at Fort Benning. Um, and I was the SGA there at, at Fort Benning. And then I was overjoyed when, when later on, when I was the SGA at first armored division and Charlie came in to be our, be our chief of staff. That was, that was fantastic. Um, it was, it was just great, uh, working, working with him, uh, with him again. And of course, uh, Moose seeing Moose in the Pentagon with, with a star on, I was like, I was the F1 and proud. It just, it was just fantastic, fantastic to see, uh, and I'm 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 sure there are others, but there's certainly. Uh... Who was who was the brigade commander that you that you were that you served with that you mentioned before? Uh, that was that was Colonel Dave Sutherland, and uh, he he is still very much active. Um, his in in his military retirement after his military retirement, he went out as the uh, as a the basically the chairman's. Um, special uh, assistant or whatever you want to call it for gold star matters. And that is something that's very near and dear to him because that, that point in Iraq, I mean, we lost, 
we lost a lot of folks in our brigade, um, 110 to be to be exact, and that that that's a lot of a lot of people. And so when Colonel Sutherland saw, you know, what their families were going through and all that, like he has made it his life's mission to to help them. So he runs basically a, a nonprofit that helps link up folks who who want to do good things for Gold Star families and veterans and stuff like that, but they really don't understand how DOD works or how to get the the in and 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 the plug-in points that they need to make that happen. So as best I understand it, like he he runs a nonprofit that does that helps them to do that, which I think is is fantastic. That's great. You mentioned too about Charlie Costanza. I think you also met in the pre-call. I think you mentioned this is that like when Chuck Poche shows up at brigade headquarters, it's it's not always a good day, right? Like it, like you got you're carrying the briefcase of pain, which is like right. well, you called it the briefcase of pain, but. Yeah. You might just stop by say say hello to your classmate Charlie Costanza, and like you know, you you just can't do that because people are like you get everybody's like, you know, yeah, we, uh, panties in a bunch. Like, oh shit, what's going on, right? So so tell me about about that, like what it was like to uh, bring come on in with the with the briefcase of pain. Yeah, so, so so those those bags, right? The bag of woe and the briefcase of pain, right, are the things that I, I would bring in to the to the commanding general, the GCMCA, be it at the division level or, or the corps level. Usually, usually once a week, all of the military justice actions um, that that they have to deal with. And just to give you some idea, I had one one division commander say, "Yeah, that you know," because he was talking about the transition with his predecessor. He says, "Yeah, the one thing that on this in this realm that my predecessor told me was." don't schedule Chuck's appointment on a Friday because it just ruins your weekend. And he's right because, because I, as the SJA, when I walk in there, like I am not bringing him certificates of achievement to sign. Like I am bringing him broken dreams and ended careers. Like these are things that have a significant impact on people's lives. Should they be court-martialed? Uh, whether you should issue them a GOMAR, where, where that thing should be filed. You know, do we need to start an investigation on this brigade commander? It, it, things, uh, things of that nature. I would tell uh, my CGs, like kind of when we do our little introductory in brief, I'm like, sir, there will be about two times a year when I'm going to come and give you good news. I'm going to tell you how many soldiers we helped in the tax center. And I'll tell you, we won the chief of staff of the Army's award for excellence in legal assistance. I said, other than that, it's all going to be bad news. That's just the, the nature of the business. Now, I will occasionally have some, some, some captains and, and majors who will do good things. And I'll tell you about that, about that, too. But I'm just letting you know that this this is not this is not the fun part of the job by any any stretch of the imagination. And they all understood that. And they all they all uh, understood the importance of it. Um, and so, yeah, what? To walk in for me to walk into a, a brigade commander's office, like everybody in that brigade knows that I'm the SJA. They don't know that I'm buddies and classmates with Charlie Costanza, right? They just know that the SJA just walked in and went and usually like on kind of no notice, walked in and went behind closed doors and the brigade commander cleared their calendar and now he's talking to the SJA. Right. That 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 may be some version of serving that guy notice of or gal a notice of a general officer memorandum reprimand or letting them know you know that that they're going to have to you know talk to the ig about x y or z i mean it, like i didn't really realize it till I, I was at that level but there aren't a lot of colonels on the division staff right the only colonels in the division are the brigade commanders the chief of staff and the jag <laughs> so 
to go kernel to kernel like that um, sometimes can be, like you said, it's an emotional event for folks who don't know, don't know what, what's going on. So I, people would say like, Hey, sir, why don't you come visit our legal office more often? I said, no, you don't understand when I show up in your footprint, it has, it has repercussions. Um, so, you know, it, whether or not that's just an excuse for how big an introvert I am, I don't know, but that, that was always very, I was always very cognizant of that. Um, if it wasn't going down there for somebody's promotion or something like that, that was pre-scheduled and people knew why you were there. It was like, I didn't, I didn't like to do it for that reason. Cause the rumors would start, would start flying. What's what I, I also on the pre-call, we mentioned this and I found this fascinating. Maybe you can, you can elaborate on it. Your client is the army. It's not that commander, right? So when, if the commander says to you, Hey, are we, are we covered by attorney client privilege or we, the answer is no. Right. Like, you are serving the army, not the commander. Right. So, so the, yes, the army is the client. Um, the army obviously acts through its its authorized representatives. Those representatives are the commander. So, in 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 ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, the commander and the army's interests align. Right. Whatever the commander thinks is best, that's the commander speaking for the army. That's what we're going to do, and I will you know provide my advice to the commander as the representative of the army. The minute the army's interests and the commander's interests diverge, uh, the client is the army. And so there is no attorney client privilege at that point uh, about those things. Things where their interests uh, combine, yes, the, the commander stands instead of the army and I have attorney client privilege with the army. So that that would that would be fine. But, you know, to take the most extreme example, if the commander says, hey, I'm going to go you know, commit this crime, I'm going to go rob this bank. Um Okay, at that point, the Army's interest and the commanders have diverged, right? Because it is not in the Army's interest to have one of their commanders rob a bank. At that point, there is no attorney-client privilege between me and that commander and what that commander told me. I'm going to tell CID what that commander told me. I'm going to tell DAIG what that commander told me. I'm going to tell the IG, you know, whoever it, it may be. I will have to because it's in the best interest of the Army that this commander, um, that the Army understand and know what this what this commander commander did. So... It's it, it's a subtlety there, but like I said, you know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the time, those interests are are you know hand in glove, and so there it's not an issue. It's only when something actually illegal is going to occur that it becomes an issue, and that's an important distinction that that I spent a lot of time over the course of my career making sure young counsel understood. So when you as a judge advocate tell somebody you have a legal objection. You are telling them that they what they are proposing is is contrary to to law, regulation, or, or policy, right? It can't just be your opinion that it's a bad idea. A commander can do things that you, as the attorney, think are a bad idea, but unless unless uh, unless they fall under one of those those categories, one uh, one one senior commander used to say, "Hey, look, look, we're not going to do anything illegal, unethical, immoral, or that might cause us to gain weight." Okay, that you know, so the, those things, illegal, immoral, unethical. If it's not that, we we are fine. But if it is, um, then our interests have diverged. But you have to be absolutely clear, especially with a commander who trusts you, that you understand that differentiation between your personal opinion and your legal opinion. Because if you tell them it's your legal opinion that they can't do this, like I said, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, they are not going to want to do something that's illegal, immoral, or unethical. So they won't do it. You are in effect sort of constraining their their mission space right they what courses of action they can do and if you said those words just because it was a bad idea in your mind wrong 
you're wrong. The army didn't put you in that position to substitute your judgment for that of that commander. The army chose that commander for a reason because of their knowledge, skill, attributes, training, and experience and all that. They get to make those decisions. They are allowed to do things that you may think is a bad idea. And what I would tell my, my uh, young captains in our office is like, but look, if you have a good relationship with your commander and they trust your, your advice, like you could tell them that, that this is your personal opinion. And, and they may say, okay, yeah, I didn't think of it that way. No, I will consider that. Or they may just say, got it, judge, I'm doing it. And either way is perfectly fine. But if you have a good relationship with them, at least you'll have the opportunity uh, opportunity to voice that opinion. They call you judge? Is that like there's like there's yeah. like, well, like top, uh, they call you judge? Certainly, uh, certainly my brigade commander, Colonel Sutherland, that, that, that's what he is. He has always, always called me. Um, but yeah, some, some, some commanders do, uh, a lot of, a lot of them do, but I'm, but it's kind of funny because I've never been a military judge. We actually have military judges. I've, I've it sounds like this must them. be, this must be tough to navigate, especially having been like in a, in a line role in the past, you know, if you were pre previously a platoon leader, XO company commander, you understand this and you want to impart your opinion, but you're not there to impart opinion. You're there to impart advice, right? Right. You're you're, you're there, there to import your legal opinion, yes, not your personal opinion. Uh, you, but to go ahead. Uh, well, you you mentioned that, like, but when somebody asks you for your opinion, that was a sign of great trust. That was when you built the relationship with that commander that you really found uh, to be uh, so uh, impactful and rewarding to you, right? You you had several commanders who would come to you not just for legal advice, but just for command advice, right? Yeah. And I, you know, I, it, I'll tell you, I, I tell you, yeah, one of the, one of the absolute proudest moments in my, in my entire career was, was when, when I had a, um, a multi-star commander walk into my office, right. Come out of, out of his office and walk over to my office and just got to just lean against the wall. And, and, and this is the question he asked me, is it, Chuck, I am sitting across the table from the president in a couple of hours. What do I need to tell him? That that's not that's not a legal question, right? That that's that's a okay. That, that's a what's your opinion on this this very significant message that I'm trying to deliver to the to the commander in chief? And I was just I was you know I gave him what I, what I thought, and, and then when I, when I reflected on it later, I was like, wow, I was that absolutely meant the world to me because clearly that commander trusted my judgment enough to ask me that kind of, of, of question. And there was, there was no legal aspect really to it. He just wanted to know what I thought about what we had going on at the time and what he had to, had to brief the president on so that the president could make, could make a decision. And, uh, you know, I'll, I'll remember that to the day I die. There's, there's, um, that meant a lot to me. That's pretty awesome. We are getting towards the end of our podcast here, and it's wow. been awesome. I knew and time flies, right? It's incredible. Right. <laughs> what did we not talk about? Let's make sure that we let's go through an inventory of the the stuff that we make sure we we got through. Like Eddie, do you have any thoughts or anything you want to bring up that, that that memorable about Chuck or anything before we give him the final final out here to give us his thoughts? Well, Chuck, I kind of consider myself a Cajun too. I spent yes. some time after. I was in New Orleans after Katrina, rebuilding the levees. Yeah. So I uh, enjoyed the hell out of the food down there. Uh, went on an airboat ride. 
by the Samoans, probably not too far away from where you're from, and uh, lovely people had a great time in New Orleans. That was a, a great, one of the best missions I've had. Hey, you know, if we, you're ever in the area again, let me know, because, you know, you know, um, my mom still makes great pralines. <laughs> you know, Bayou Distillery is right there on 10. <laughs> yeah. We didn't talk about the heat stroke. We got to talk about heat stroke. We missed the heat stroke story. <laughs> He, so you mentioned you 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 glossed over this quickly. I didn't interrupt you, but you said you had a near death experience, Chuck. So tell me about your near death experience that you had. All right. So so um, coming out of the graduate course, right? We we all we all have we get new JAG core assignments. You're right. We're newly minted majors. We just finished our advanced legal training, and now we got to go out somewhere. And so we got to do this list of uh, you know put your your wish list of the stuff of where you want to go. And at that point, I had a conversation with with Renee that in the short form form, form was basically like she's she, she asked me the question, like, are you done with all of this? I'm a man crap. And by that, she was talking about stuff like jumping out of airplanes and, you know, going to ranger school and, and all that, because you have kids now, as she pointed out. <laughs> and I and I promised her, I'm like, yes, I'm done with all of that. So one of the jobs that was going to be open was to be the legal advisor to the 75th Ranger Regiment. That qualifies as asking for that job qualifies as that I'm a man crap in Renee's opinion. So I was not asking for that job. And my detailer, my assignment officer came came down and, and he said, hey, Chuck, I got your list. And you need to keep in mind that you are pretty uniquely qualified for a job that we have open. Because, look, there aren't that many judge advocates with Ranger tabs. Right. I mean, there just there just aren't because there's not that time in your career where you, you can do that. So normally it is folks who have done some other kind of army stuff before. And I said, sir, I, I understand that, but you need to know, I promised Renee that I would not ask for this job. And he says, okay, you promised her that? I said, oh, yes, sir, I did. He said, okay, now, but you do understand I can give you a job that you didn't ask for. I just owe you a phone call if I do that. I said, sir, I understand that, but I can't put that job on my list. <laughs> and he said, okay. And so he called me the next morning and told me he was giving me that job. All right, so now I got to do the, the the ranger assessment uh, because they don't just take anybody in the regiment as as one would expect, um, and part of that is a is a, a twelve mile timed uh, ruck march. So I go down to Fort Benning uh, to do that, um, and I can remember, you know, I'm like the oldest guy there. Like it's all a bunch of like staff sergeants and young captains and lieutenants, and we got the five mile run before that. Um, so we do the five mile run. And I remember there's one guy from the airborne brigade in Alaska who like just smoked this five mile run. Like he ran this thing at like, it, it was, it was probably like a sub six minute pace. Right. I mean, he was just phenomenal. Um, I'm like, wow. Uh, and then we do go to do the 12 mile, uh, ruck march and like, and I passed that guy at the six mile point, <clears throat> which is probably should have been a good sign that the old judge advocate should not be out in front of this young lieutenant, right. Who was clearly in phenomenal physical shape because Jamie, that is the last thing that I remember. The next thing I remember is people are slapping me. They are hitting me. They are asking me to tell them my name and I can't do any of that. And I remember I have the, like a series of thoughts. I'm like, okay. Cause we had to do some assessment before the day before where they write down how much education we had. And I was thinking like, dude, I have like 20 something years of formal education and now I have brain damage and I can't talk. I'm really mad. And then I was like, oh, and I'm a lawyer. When I figure out who hit me, because I thought somebody ran over me with their car or whatever, I'm suing that person. <laughs> and then, then I black out again, right? And when, when, when I wake up, I look around and there's a second lieutenant uh, nurse standing over me and she, she says, sir, do you know where you are? 
And I look around and, and, and I'm like, I'm in Effin Martin Army Hospital, aren't I? Again. Again, because I recognize the place, right? Uh, and, and she says, "Oh yes, sir. We we are we are very happy to hear from you. We don't we don't get many back from that 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 high a core temperature, right?" So I I still didn't kind of know what was going on until later on a, a staff sergeant came in and he came in and was funny, introduced himself and and uh and he said, "Sir, I'm here to apologize to you." I'm like, "For what?" He says, "Sir, we we had we beat the crap out of you." I'm like, Sergeant, I have no memory. I, I don't know what happened. What happened? He, he said, look, we were taking the, the enlisted folks out on their 12-mile um, qualification ruck or whatever, and you officers had gone out before because, you know, we can trust you to do it on your own or whatever the case may be. He said, so we were going out. You were coming in. You were at like the eight-mile point, your eight-mile point. You ran into one of the guys in our formation, and you, like, bounced off of him, and you promoted him to Sergeant Major, and then, then you kind of stumbled into this next guy, and luckily for you, sir, that guy had enough sense to call one of us and say, hey, Sergeant, y'all got to come and check this guy out. He's effed up. And he said, sir, I walked over to you, and I could tell that you were not all there. And so I told you, I was like, sir, you got to get on this truck. This is a medical emergency. You are suffering from heat stroke. And you said, Sergeant, I'm not getting on the truck. And I said, sir, you don't understand. You have to get on this truck. And I said... I'm not getting on the truck. Thinking about that, I'm probably having flashbacks to ranger school, right? Where you don't get on the truck. You get on the truck, mm -hmm. you're you're done, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not getting on the truck. And he said, sir, and you were not getting on that truck because the, after the second time you told me you weren't getting on the truck, you turned around and you started hauling ass through the woods. He said, I had to chase you down. And sir, to your credit, you were not getting on that truck. We had to subdue you. We beat the crap out of you to put you on that truck. <laughs> and I said, "Hey, Sergeant, all is forgiven because there's no doubt in my mind that 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 you saved you saved my life, right?" Um, so, so you yeah, had so a full blown heat stroke, full full blown heat stroke, full blown heat stroke. So then, yeah, again, convalescent leave, whole thing, right? So you're not so getting the, that job at this at your range regiment, right? Right. So I can't, I can't, the, the regimental commander to his, to his great credit did come, did come to visit me. And, uh, and I, I remember this, but he was, he was very nice about it. It was, it's kind of funny. He's like, Hey, Poche, you're, you're our kind of ranger. You don't quit. It says, I could see that in you. That that's obvious, but, but I can't take you because you got to be on profile for a year after a heat stroke, you got to go through one heating and cooling cycle to make sure you're, you're all good. And you can't be in the 75th if you're not immediately deployable. So, um, so come see us in a year. Um, and I, I knew at the time that there's no way that would work out with the, with the Jag Corps, but, uh, but yeah, so like full blown, like. Moose, Moose just, Moose just put in the chat, raging Cajun running through the woods with heat stroke. <laughs> yeah. Literally raging Cajun. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's the, that's the gist of that story. So but my as, mother you point out, on the hospital, as you point out, like with every one of these like things, something else opens up. Right. So then you take, another role and you avoided what would have been a pretty problematic area. You would have gone right into the whole Pat Tillman situation, right? Because that, that is correct. That is, that is exactly the time where that, that whole thing was going on with the, with the 75th uh, Ranger Regiment. And, uh, and I know very well that the, the judge advocate who they had to pull off of what his assignment was and send him to the 75th on basically no notice because Poche, Poche didn't make the cut. Right. So, um, so he walked walked into that and then there's sort of the okay now he's in, he's involved in that he's tied up in that his his name is associated with that so there's you know the promotion list gets delayed and all of those things that we see that happens at the political um level when there when there are questions and, and you know that that's the senate's prerogative right they they get they get a say in 
and who gets confirmed or, or not. And they're going to make sure that their questions are answered. So sometimes those, those things happen and that individual just by virtue of the circumstances, and he's a phenomenal individual, great lawyer. I don't know that I would have done anything differently than he did. Um, but it would, I would have been the one caught up in, in that, uh, but for the, that heat stroke thing. Hmm. So now that we've made sure we've got through everything that was on our, on our list, Let's, let's move here now. We're at the end of the podcast. And Chuck, it's been a tremendous night talking to you. Eddie, thank you for being here, uh, riding co-pilot. And Chuck, I want to hand this over to you for any other reflections, final words, or insights you could leave with our class. Okay. Um, so so I, got, I got one thing, just sort of uh, a piece of advice uh, for folks to, to, to think about. Um, and then I got, they got one kind of final thought. So like, so the piece of advice you know, we're all of the same age thereabouts, you know, Baxter being a little bit of an outlier, but pretty much all the same age. So, so we, we all have, we all have the issue of, of, of aging parents. Right. And, and I have um, recently just been helping my dad, whom I mentioned, you know, served during the Vietnam era, just one tour served in the Vietnam era, help get him plugged in with the VA. Like he did not think because that's how that generation was. Right. He didn't think that the VA could do anything for him because he just served one tour. It's like, no, dad, that's not, that's not how that worked. So it, it got him plugged in with that. He's now got a brand new set of state of the art hearing aids that will be life-changing for him. I'm sure my mom is jealous because she's got to pay for her hearing aids, but he gets his free from the VA. Now uh, I've got him put into the VA disability system in case that he is entitled to some kind of disability uh, compensation. They're going to, they'll work through that and make that determination. And he, you know, his whole thing was like, why would they give me that? I said, dad, you were a, you were a mechanic on an airfield. Did the army ever give you earplugs? He said, no. I said, okay, let the VA make the call as to whether or not any of your hearing loss is associated with your time in service. Like don't, don't, don't not do that. So I would encourage our folks out there who have aging parents who may have served, who've never gone through that. Um, the VA is phenomenal right now. They they really are. I know there are times in the past where people have said they have not been helpful or wanted to help or whatever. That's not today's VA. They are all about helping folks. Um, so link your, your folks up with that if, if they are deserving of something, because America owes them so much and America expresses their gratitude solely through the VA. So I'd encourage you to do that. Um, kind of the, the, just the the final thought uh, on on experiences and, and stuff like that. So I I will say this: somebody once told me, you know, in the Army JAG Corps, like, look, Chuck, the last hard legal question you had to answer by yourself was on the bar exam. And they they meant that. What they meant by that was, we are all here to help each other, right? If you got a hard legal question, you don't have to answer it by yourself. This is not the bar exam. Talk to your buddy who's sitting next to you who may, who may have dealt with this. And I, I say that to say that the last hard thing maybe all of us really ever had to do by ourselves, if you think about it, was either get on that plane or take those 30 seconds to say goodbye on our day, right? Because now, now we've got all of our classmates who have wonderful experiences, who are probably going through some of the same things, if not have already gone through the same things and figured out how how to, how to help with them, like reach out um, and ask each other. Uh, I get a text every now and then from a couple of buddies of mine on, on a particular anniversary that's significant uh, to them for whatever. They just say, Hey, just checking in. How are you feeling? How you, how you thinking? What are you thinking about? Is it, how are things going? And that would be enough. You know, if I had something that was weighing on my mind to, you know, pick up the phone and call them and talk to them. So, so we can all be there, be there for each other. And we should be, cause we have this common bond and Jamie, thank you for, for you keeping us all together with, with this podcast. I think it's a, it's a great help. So I just, you know, um, 
would would put that out there. If you're going through something, I guarantee you, some one of us, somebody else has gone through it too. Uh, please, by all means, uh, you know, reach out. Like I think I could call Jamie and ask ask for anything. We've all we've all got roommates and classmates like that. By all means, uh, by all means, do. I think just I just think it's it's great that we have this this group of folks that we can turn to. Over. What a great perspective. Thank you so much, Chuck. Um, and uh, what a blessing it is to have you as a classmate, friend, former roommate, uh, accomplice, uh, somebody we've been through so much together with. I, I feel the same way. If I had something, I'd be able to ask you about it. And I think that's the beauty of this, right? Like we have this, this closeness and this this uh, vulnerability that we can show with each other. And we also, is a there's a certain degree of almost like anonymity that comes with this too right it's not like you're living next door to me and and or in my community like if I, if I have something like some kind of really challenging circumstance that I want to be able to share with you I could do that right that's the beauty of who we are we got miles and miles to go we're only mid-50s right we're going to be doing this for 35 40 50 more years right so thank god for that so Eddie thank you for being here as part of the uh old grad podcast I look forward to doing the the podcast with you directly and hearing your story as well directly so we're but you 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 have been a a, a tremendous asset to company f1 and to the class of 91 so i'm grateful for you both for everybody that joined us tonight thank you duty shall be done i'm going to stop the live feed but you guys can stick around and we can uh we can chat further uh thank you everybody duty shall yeah. be done awesome All great right. job guys Good yeah, time. Great, great time. Yeah, that was great. Yeah, thanks, Eddie. That was that was fantastic. Yeah, it goes, it goes fast, Jamie. You're right. I was like, man, how are we going to fill all this time? But you know, yeah, we all get we all it's, got stories. It's amazing. Stuff. It just flies by. We're almost on for two hours. You know, yeah. this. It, but it's great though. It's great having these these connections. To be able to talk about this stuff. Funny that you learned something. You spent four years with people and. Every time you talk to them, you learn a little something different that you didn't know about. Yeah, it, yeah. it, it, it is amazing. And and I was telling Jamie, or I think I wrote it in the pre-question, is and it's like, like no time has elapsed, right? Do we just see each other and yep. we just pick up the conversation from where wherever it was, you know, when on graduation day or whatever? There's no there's no getting to kind of know each other and like too shy to say X, Y, or Z. Like, no, we are like it's like family. Send lawyers, guns, and money. Dad, get me out of this. Ha! I'm the innocent bystander. In a hard place And I'm down on my luck Yes, I'm down on my luck Well, I'm down on my luck I'm hiding in Honduras I'm a desperate man Guns and money. This shit has hit the fan.
guns and money. 